Sabor Latino. It's what you need to feed the body, mind, and soul. If you crave the exquisite flavors of Latin music from around the world, check out Sabor Latino with Rico, Susana, or Cheo on Tuesdays from 8 to 10 p.m. That's on WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming on WERU.org. Que aproveche. Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. And you're listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring, coming up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. This morning, we'll be talking to uh, Dr. Darren Ranko and uh, John Bear Mitchell from the uh, University of Maine. Uh, Dr. Ranko is a faculty member at the University of Maine uh, Department of Anthropology, as well as the chair of Native American programs and coordinator of Native American research. Um, and uh, John Beer, John Beer Mitchell, is the outreach uh, and student coordinator for the Wabanaki Center. Uh, later on, we'll also be uh, having on the, uh, on the line Commissioner of Education, Pender Macon, and Special Projects Coordinator from the Department of Education, Mary Herman. Uh, our topic today is Indian education. We'll be discussing the waiver program and the law known as LD-291. So we have a lot of uh, things to get to this morning, and we're going to begin with uh, uh, John Bear Mitchell, and we're going to talk about the scholarship program. So. Welcome to the show, John, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I want to just start off by um, giving some history of the program, where it started, sort of what the intentions from the best notes we could decipher are, and the history along with the uh, Board of Trustees. Earlier on, it was the Board of Governors. And it came about in 1934 when it first started. At that time, the humane system was made up of what they call the Board of Governors. And uh, they had the mission of the land-grant in mind. One of the things was in that land-grant institution, and it set up its mission, was to uh, make sure that they're meeting the needs of minority folks in, in the state. At the time, in 1934, that was... Uh, the largest minority population being the indigenous population in the state of Maine. And also at that time, the Passamaquoddy and the Penobscot were sort of established, let's just say, tribes with a land base and a population and uh, status as a, as a native tribe, I guess, it's, to put it that way. The Micmacs and the Maliseets at that time by the state were not considered in the program and essentially... I, you know, we can look back at history and make a determination on why that was, uh, they were not included. And I think that basically was that they didn't have a, at that point in time, a, so let's say a tribal headquarters in the state. 
they existed in the state. They were semi-migratory as well, and they followed sort of uh, harvests and, uh, you know, did, did fishing and, and things like that, but their home base was in different places. So in 1934, the, like I said, the then Board of Governors uh, considered the Penobscots and the Passamaquoddy in what they called a tuition waiver program. And by that, they afforded the opportunity for one male and one female Penobscot, and then one male and one female Passamaquoddy to attend the University of Maine as they got accepted like anybody else would, so they'd have to qualify academically. So this wasn't just something that they would pull out of their hat. This was uh, uh, folks who had met the, uh, the admissions requirements to become a student at the University of Maine. And uh, then they were, would be given uh, tuition and fee sort of uh, waivers. As far as housing goes, that was a really a non-consideration at that point in time, that early on. And uh, they did have some houses with a house mother that people could stay in, but that wasn't included in the original sort of mission around the Native American Room and Board. So what happened was they ended up uh, not really getting any participation in that uh, right off. And it didn't come around until probably the participation, at least until the 40s. The first graduate in that program was a Penobscot woman. And she got her bachelor's degree. And uh, later on, uh, there was a Penobscot male that, that graduated as well. And there wasn't any record of earlier on Passamaquoddies at that point in time being involved or partaking in the program. And probably that had to do with a lot of socioeconomic reasons back home, uh, more reasons to stay home than there was to go away and study. So that didn't come around until later on where that participation took place. In 1974, uh, the, the program had increased to accept uh, any number of qualified Penobscot Passamaquoddy. And it still didn't really have much consideration at that point, didn't specifically state uh, Maliseet or Micmac, but it did say that all Maine Indian tribes who uh, had people that could qualify would be accepted. That's when we started to see a sort of a more robust student population come around. And also at that time as well, there were several other campuses that were now in the UMaine system, the UMaine Board of Governors, in 1969 had been uh, renamed the Board of Trustees, and so they were making decisions at that point in time as to what the program would look like. So throughout the 70s and early 80s, it expanded, and uh, it expanded to accept any number of qualified Maine Indians and all other tribes later on in the United States or Canada that had uh, federal state or provincial status. From there, uh, we started to see a lull, a plateau in enrollment and participation. And, uh, and, and of course, in the 90s and early 2000s, budget cuts came. And uh, it was a really tough time, so populations that were once served under the program are no longer served. Uh, the way in which funding is, is uh, provided is redone, so basically it's reconfigured uh, so that all folks that, have, that participate in the program have to have state residency. Uh, we do uh, have a Roman Board grant now, not a scholarship. A scholarship would cover it all. A Roman Board grant covers a certain part depending on income. So there's all different kinds of uh, phases in which the program has been through. But to date, we know that um, as far as we can measure, we've, we've awarded uh, hundreds of bachelor's degrees. I think at last count, we could go back from, I think, 1985 to, uh, I think it was 2014 at the time, I believe it was. And we had 
uh, about 450 bachelor's degrees that were awarded over that period of time. That doesn't include master's or higher degrees or certifications, but it's done wonderful things for the tribes. And by that, that, that uh, means that the, the people that partook in that program, a majority of which stayed in the state of Maine, now pay higher taxes back to the state and to the federal government. They have better income. They pay taxes when they purchase. So the state's getting its return on that investment. So today, we average about 165 students, uh, Native American students, on the UMaine campus, and a total of maybe around 400 systemically within the seven campus systems. This year, we've had an increase so far to date. Uh, we've had over 100 approvals for this coming year, and uh, I think 101, actually, at last, yesterday's count which is a significant increase. But uh, our, our population, as far as being accepted into any kind of post-secondary, is that it's a little consistent or a little more consistent with what the state has for its population as of enrollment. So if the state's population decreases enrollment in higher ed, we tend to as well. We tend to follow that trend. Nationally, we're a little bit above average uh, on enrollment. So. Um, on a per capita basis. So it's doing wonderful things. We have a lot of people that are educated because of the program. Okay, so let's say that um, you're a, a student, uh, well, let's just say uh, Maliseet, and you want to uh, apply for scholarship. Mm -hmm. What's the steps for that? So you get accepted as a student first. How do you do that? You basically, uh, like anybody else, you'd apply for their admissions. You'd meet the qualifications or standards, of whatever it may be, SAT scores, percentile graduating in your class if you're a traditional student. Um, and uh, you would uh, ex be accepted into a degree program or a non-degree program, depending on if you wanted to go full-time or part-time. And uh, from there, you would be um, notified that um, you need to complete your FAFSA and that you need, if you wanted to apply for housing, now would be the time. So to explain FAFSA. So the federal application, the free federal application for financial assistance, I'm saying those out of, out of line, but uh, basically what it is, it's an application in which a student fills out, or usually it's a parent the first couple of years because it's their income that's, that's based on, and it has all the income information of the family and uh, the, the demographics of your family, everything that has to do with that. And the federal government will issue a, a report back to the campus on uh, what you may qualify for financial aid and what that may be is certain grants, Pell Grants, or student loans, subsidized, unsubsidized, whether or not you're going to qualify for work study or whatever it may be. It's going to give you some kind of financial assistance. And, once that, and that's based on income. So if you have a high income, you're probably going to get, you are going to get way less of a financial aid package. If you have a low income, then you're going to get higher financial aid packaging. So what's considered like, I don't know, what's considered a low income? Well, typically in Maine, because it's all different, a low income would be anywhere from twenty to $30,000 would, would be considered low. I mean, I think in, in our program that would pretty much give you uh, – depending on how many siblings you have, a considerable amount in a, in a room and board grant. As far as the tuition and uh, fee waiver goes, that's, that's going to be 100%, no matter what the income level is. But we have uh, folks who have an income level of over $100,000, that, that their parents have an income over $100,000, and uh, they would qualify for less financial aid just because they make more money. And again, it's... It's, there's a lot in there that's considered, so demographics, what state you're in, how many siblings, um, you know, all these things are considered in that packaging. So there's so many different uh, configurations that if, even if you're a twin and you, you're going to, say, UMaine and the other twin's going to UMaine Fort Kent, they're going to get different amounts of financial aid packaging because the campus's financial aid needs are different as well and uh, what it costs to run those campuses are a little bit different, what the credit hours, they're consistent. Uh, 
but um, there's all different factors that are figured in. It's, there's no one number that anyone could give you, but it, generally speaking, it's within a, within a, I guess, a, an area of need. So that's pretty complicated, that, that FAPSA thing. Yeah, uh, financial aid folks have a, have a tough job. They have to do this for each student, and they usually package each student three or four times before they get the final package. Oh. One of the things, just if I could add in, sure. Donna, um, is we uh, historically um, we have worked with uh, the tribal communities and the education directors in them to um, help people because I think we really recognize that um, applying for college, especially for first generation students, is um, as you mentioned very complicated and can be very daunting, um, and I. And in the last couple of years, um, we've actually redoubled the efforts of doing going to each community, having training sessions with our financial aid people so they can kind of walk people through um, as part of our recruitment as well. And, and um, after recent uh, assessments um, of our overall program, you know, those, the, the, the number of those kinds of trainings and our uh, efforts around that have really um, redoubled. So. I think, um, you know, before I think the idea would be because of this um, waiver program that, you know, and the education directors and the communities that, you know, people would kind of find us uh, and, and want to go to school for, for you know, uh, no tuition uh, costs. But I think we really um, are redoubling our efforts in terms of recruitment of Native students after some... Uh, some of our recent assessments, where we've gone through that after, you know, every five years or so. So I think um, you're right. It's not uh, accessible to everyone, and I think there are other programs for for across the state too for non-native, first-generation students as well. That really focusing in on, you know, families and and students whose you know uh, parents might not have gone to college to really recruit them and make the processes easy and understandable as possible. I think uh, to piggyback what uh, Darren was saying is that it's trust building within the communities because of the boarding school experiences. More the, the more rural communities have had more recent boarding school experiences, but I know that within the Penobscot and Passamaquoddy tribe, uh, institutions say like Haskell, which was a boarding school in the um, 1800s to turn of the century, mid-1900s, probably, I mean, 1915-ish before uh, that was population was was waning as far as what it was doing uh, had really taken a lot of trust away from the communities as far as what the educational process was so this program is is still to this day trying to earn the trust of community folks within tribal communities to trust the educational system and that's still complicated and I think that's one of the reasons why we do send uh, we have admissions folks and financial aid folks and we work with the education directors for the tribes and Maine education and the state. Yeah. So is there a certain time of year that you go to the communities? It's actually, I mean, there are various times. Um, we have, um, again, really committed to our recruitment admissions people to go to, um, you know, the tribes all have sort of community health fairs or, or education and work fairs. So we, we send uh, almost always send someone from our admissions uh, to to that to those uh, events, which tend to happen, I think, kind of late spring, early summer, for most of the communities, and then we've um, really redoubled our efforts um, to doing the application process, kind of in the fall, early fall, because it's you know college application process kind of starts off in the fall for the fo following fall. And so we've done some efforts, um, a few of the communities just doing like a sit-down training session through the education directors, the Department of Education at uh, each of the tribes to have these sort of open training sessions as well. So yeah, I think more recruitment is more of a spring, uh, uh, late spring, early summer thing. And then the kind of more training, like financial aid kind of pieces are more in the fall. Um, and I think that's, uh, those will be even increasing this fall. I've just been emailing with some of the folks over there. Uh, to make so sure each, each community um, sets this up. 
with yeah, you. Yeah, in, it's the education directors. Yeah, the education directors. So if a native potential student is interested, they would call the education director yeah, in each of these communities? And generally, the, so the education directors will, will communicate that through a community flyer or, or other kinds of, you know, communication. The, the tribes sure. use a different <laughs> different systems for communication. <laughs> I'm Website, tempted to say Facebook. something, but I'm not going to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like a couple of the tribes, I know yeah. like at Holton Band, Amber e uses sure. um, Facebook pretty effectively, and she has a good... Um, like I'm always checking their Facebook, and she she connects with her community and her students pretty well through Facebook. It's it's not the same in yeah. every community. So, okay. So for the native uh, waiver, what's the process for that? So once once they get accepted as a student, um, because if they're not a student, we can't start the process. So they have to be a student. Okay. Um, what we do is. We, we communicate with the tribal ed directors as well. Uh, we, we've met with them so many times over the years that we've established this protocol that's consistent across all the tribes and, um, and all the campuses in the state, or the Humane System campuses, that is. Um, we're only responsible for the Humane System campuses. Anything else, community college systems, privates, or even Maine Maritime Academy, they do their own thing. We're, we're not involved. So within the humane system, uh, what we do is we require them to have an official document from their tribe that states their membership into that tribe. And it has to be an original document. It has to be no older than two years old as far as its dated goes. Generally speaking, though, they're pretty hot off the press when we do ask for them, the student to get them. They, they come uh, right out of the office to us. Yeah, so... Let's say that you have a student that does that and does all of the requirements, the paperwork, documentation. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, they, they're out of the system for a few years. Do yep. they have to do the whole thing again? Yeah, if they're out of the system for more than two years, they have to redo it. And the reason for that, there's a reason for that, is because um, tribes nationally and, and earlier on in the state of Maine were, were reviewing their census every couple of years. And uh, sometimes people would be taken off the census. There'd be more people added on to it. Whatever the reason is, that's up to the tribes. That's not up to us. Again, we, we don't determine tribal uh, what, what's a tribe and what's not a tribe. We, we determine who's qualified based on their tribal certification. And um, so uh, if they're out for two years, so say they graduate with a bachelor's degree, uh, because we allow one degree at every level, so one bachelor's, one master's, and one more advanced, whether you want to go for a PhD or some in-between program, certificate of advanced study or whatever it may be, we cover one of each level. And uh, they're out for maybe five years working in the field, and they decide they want to come back for a master's. They would have to reapply for the native waiver again. And again, that's just to make sure, it's just a checks and balances to make sure they're still enrolled uh, to make sure they're eligible as a native person. Uh, because again, uh, we do get several applications of people who don't meet the criteria. And uh, in other words, they're really not enrolled in a tribe or the tribe is that they're enrolled in is really not a tribe. It's sometimes a heritage group uh, with recognition. And that's another whole topic right there. But but yeah. not necessarily a federal, state, or provincially recognized tribe. And, uh, and so we, we have to go by that criteria. So, uh, yeah, they, so they do have to reapply. And it's, it's pretty simple once they've been through the process once. It's pretty simple to go through it again. Uh, generally speaking, 100% success, you know. Uh, they just communicate with their tribe. Yeah, I think... Um it's, uh, again, with the help of the education directors and the tribes, um, getting this documentation to us, it's uh, often just directly faxed to us from the tribal office and certified. And so we accept that, and all the tribes in Maine obviously know us and have our fax number, and um, it's, it's, um, that's the best way we can assure kind of the accuracy pieces of it. Uh, is having that documentation directly from from the the tribes, um, and then for Wabanaki, 
tribes, which includes also the Wabanaki tribes in, in Canada. Um, we also include in the program descendants to the second uh, generation. So it, even if you just had a parent or grandparent on the on the census roll, we also um, have the program for the, that group of students. Uh, and that application process requires, and John will probably correct me if I get this wrong, um, not only sort of proof of the citizenship or membership of the parent or grandparent, but then the birth certificates, pr you know, proving your linkage to uh, that uh, enrolled tribal citizen. Right. Yeah, I have to have a biological connection to to that person. And um, this this particular uh, piece that Darren's talking about is specifically for Wabanaki people. We have an inherent right to this land, and uh, we don't dispute that. I mean, it's it, we have an inherent right to this land. We've been here for thousands of years, and nobody has the right to supersede or to tell us we don't. So we have... Uh, the rights to our citizenry as well, and to define that. And uh, we define it in the Wabanaki sense as uh, you have a parent or a grandparent who is enrolled in the, in the tribe, one of the Wabanaki tribes. But if you are from the Canadian Wabanaki tribes, uh, whether you're a descendant or a directly enrolled tribal member, you still have to establish residency in the state of Maine in order to qualify. Um, if you're from any other tribe, in the country, you have to establish residency. We do not bill at an out-of-state or out-of-country rate. We bill at all in-state rates. So um, everybody has to meet our residency requirements, and that's only fair and just to uh, the, the the spirit of the program, or the original intention of the program, and the history of the program throughout the 70s. The tribes have been involved since the 70s at some capacity. and. Uh, when tribes settled on education directors, then they were the ones that the, that the chiefs and councils directed to work with with us. Uh, again, I'm I'm probably the third or fourth one in this uh, in this seat in the history of the program, but um, the tribes are comfortable with an indigenous person receiving that information, and uh, we we scan it, we file it in a in a secure digital format and we destroy the original documentations that don't go back to the students. So in other words, all original documentation we send back to the student, but then those photocopies that are certified, after we scan them and digitize them, we destroy them. So we have their records, and so it's not like they become a mystery after that. We really, we really have the, uh, the desire to uh, increase and educate our people and uh, so for them to actually so is there a form for the waiter for the waiver program? yes and where is, do they get that yeah so if they went to the university of maine website and went to like an a to z directory and looked under w for wabanaki center there's a bunch of tabs there and one of the tabs is uh the native american waiver program and when you get there the um the waiver application is clickable and able to be filled out online and from their email to us that's the only document that we don't need an original of. So uh, then they accompany that by their tribal membership document, which sometimes shows up. And uh, a little bit after their application, rarely do they get them all in at once. And uh, we just hold on to them until their package is complete, and then uh, we'll, we'll process it and send them a letter. Okay, so the best thing for the potential native student to do if they're from the tribal community is to contact their higher ed person to help them through the absolutely the system yeah. and whatever yeah, yeah and in you know we um again in the last uh year or two we've really increased um uh, the recognition of the role so from the university side recognizing the importance and uh of those education directors in the communities allowing you know, creating pathways or, or mechanisms where, you know, um, they're basically more recognized and respected by the different financial aid and admissions offices, creating, you know, some understanding that these are positions in our communities that are really important um, and that they will be advocating for our students. And, and I mean, I think we're really lucky in the tribes in Maine that these uh, education directors are extraordinarily committed individuals. Um, um, they're all women, uh, which probably not an accident, but they're, 
you know, Wabanaki women who are super committed to their communities and to the education of, 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 of Native youth in the state. And um, it's just a phenomenal group of, of people who, you know, I mean, we can't, you know, none of this is happening by one person or, or alone. And, and I just think they're extraordinary. And I think that's one of the smartest things we've done in the last year or two is to make sure that the university of main system, you know, the broader systems that uh, are about, you know, processing applications, et cetera, that they recognize the importance of those individuals. And, you know, thinking about tribes as, as you know, sovereign governments that are advocating, you know, uh, for their students and there are certain rights and responsibilities that are going along with that. So really, you know, pushing on the training of University of Maine uh, system uh, employees uh, as well to understand the importance of of so, the tribal government. Yeah. So do you do you go to like uh, USM or uh, Machias or any of those places to talk with uh, even the students there? I mean, to the. Yep. Yeah, I do. I um, try to visit one campus every every year, and. Uh, it depends on the population of our, our student population, Native American student population in those campuses to whether or not like I'm gonna be there in person. Uh, but uh, the ones I do visit in person quite a bit is uh, USM and uh, I've been to uh, Presque Isle quite a few times as well. But USM is, is easy to visit. Uh, they have a very active student population and uh, I've been down, I think I was down there two or three times last year. Okay. And I've done talks down there and presentations, and not just with students, but it's uh, with faculty and administration as well. And it basically, it's not just talking about the program, but it's talking about Indian education in general. And there are, um, at each campus, there is a coordinator, a contact position, a person for the waiver program that are associated with our offices and John's program. Right, so the students on that campus go to that person physically. They don't have to come to us, me, let's say, or Darren. Yeah. They have a face they can visit on their campus. Okay. All right. So I think we've covered that subject. We, I mean, we could probably do a whole show on it. Uh, maybe we will at some point. Uh, but right now we're going to go into the, uh, the topic of what's known as LD-291. Uh, that's the uh, main education program. And I have the Commissioner of Education, uh, Pendra Macon, uh, and she's on the line. And before, I know you're there, Pender. I can hear you. Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm pulling over. Okay. Uh, so as a way of introduction uh, for uh, Commissioner uh, Macon, just a, a little blurb. Uh, Something of, of interest here is that uh, uh, she grew up in uh, Saco and attended uh, local schools, graduated from Thornton Academy. She worked uh, as a mate and deckhand on her father's deep-sea fishing uh, charter boat during the summers, uh, begin beginning at age eight. Uh, so she might know something about aquaculture. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> Uh, she earned both her uh, BA in English Literature and her MS in School Leadership from the University of Southern Maine and received her teacher certificate from the University of New England's Department of Education in 1996. And you live in Scarborough with your husband and your dog. Yes, yeah. we just have Sally, so. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Pender, I, we're interested in what's uh, going on in the Department of Education. Reference the uh, the history, Native American history law. Are you doing anything? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, um, our social studies um, content area specialist, Joe Schmidt, has just completed. Um, it's a regular cycle of review and revision for um, each content area, and they're all on a different rotation. And through a year-long process, uh, Joe has been revising those social studies standards with input from um, higher ed and educators and administrators and um, community members. And he has uh, been working hard to update guidance and um, 
information around uh, teaching Wabanaki history and culture and incorporating that in a more meaningful way into the standards. Also, as you know, okay. we have, uh, we've been trying to reinvigorate a group, or actually I, at this point I would say we have developed a new committee or uh, work group committed to providing for schools updated resources and um, guidance around implementing the uh, LD-291 requirements that Wabanaki history and culture are taught during um, students' trajectory through their pre-K now through 12 education. Okay, so we have a, uh, a committee that the department is uh, starting, is that correct? Yes, um, and we've had We've had a planning meeting, and we've had one uh, first meeting, and we're certainly hoping to encourage uh, additional participation in our future meetings. We're hoping to meet once a month, um, at least as long as we have to, until we've really um, established a method for providing ongoing support to school districts uh, so that they're feeling more comfortable in implementing and incorporating the, the Wabanaki studies. Yeah, and we have, and Darren and John Bear are uh, on that uh, committee. So I'm just wondering, uh, Darren, you have any comments about the experience so far? <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, Donna, uh, I think you're being coy about your understanding of the law, um, having drafted it. Um, but the... Um, you know, it, it's been really great in the, you know, with, with the new uh, administration and, and Pender's uh, leadership, um, seeing this uh, redoubling of efforts to, you know, fully implement, um, you know, a dream by many folks um, who, as, as, as Native educators, you know, to really have deeper understanding by all of Maine about who we are. Uh, I think, you know, we've been erased for, for, for a very long time. So getting this as part of school curriculum is, I think, a, a huge uh, important step for creating um, more understanding between Native and non-Native folks in the state um, and also advancing, I think, the, uh, the goals of, of Native communities. So I, it's uh, to see this in the last six months, um, where the com uh, the commission uh, commissioner and the, the Department of Education is really uh, attempting to reinvigorate it. In some ways, I would say the leadership being more from the uh, the, the Department of Education is really helpful to me because I think in the early phases of implementation, I think you know it wasn't clear. Um, that they would be taking uh, uh, the, the, the leadership role. There was a commission that was appointed by the law that was drafted, uh, and they, that com in some ways that commission kind of took over um, and was the leadership uh, of how to you know, develop and implement the law. Uh, and they created great reports and suggestions, but you know, really the next step would have been you know, a real champion uh, by, by the Department of Education. And, and um, while it might have been slower than we would have wanted to see it uh, in terms of implementing it. It's really heartening to see this commitment by uh, Commissioner Macon and others um, in the Department of Education to 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 really fully implement this and you know give the the, the teachers and all of Maine schools uh, the resources um, while while maintaining you know Wabanaki people and leadership in in how that will look. Uh, so our voices are are really directing how this process goes. So. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited, and I believe, Pender, we're going to meet on September 30th. Uh, hopefully that's been confirmed in Callis, so we can get, um, especially Passamaquoddy's, who uh, kind of is right in between their two reservations, you know, to to uh, be really uh, fully participating. So we're I'm, I'm super excited about it. You know, in previous in iterations, the commission, you know, um, there was leadership by the University of Maine system, and I'm hoping to get more participation from uh, in the in the University of Maine system from our departments of education, which I think is the other side of the leadership that we need to see. And and I'm hoping to see more of that, where tra teacher training would also be more um, directly involved in the implementation of this law. So I think I see the Department of Education stepping up. 
I want to see more uh, stepping up in terms of leadership by the various departments of education in the University of Maine system and in the other um, trainers of, of, of teachers here in the, in the state. So, yeah, I'm super excited about uh, what's next. You had a comment on that, Pender? Uh, just that we are really eager to be and, and grateful to be partnering with the university and with the tribal leaders on this effort. Um, clearly, it's not the type of thing we could ever manage uh, in, a, in a silo, certainly. We need the expertise and, and, and the, uh, the support across the entire continuum. John Beer? You know, one of the things that's really good about this law is that when uh, you referred back, Donna, to LD-291, uh, that bill was passed in 2001. And uh, from there, the commission met for seven years to create this report. It was a standalone law, and it really was uh, unable to be accounted for. How do we measure it? How do we determine whether it's working or not? And in order to do that, we needed to incorporate that into the main state learning results. But the main state learning results didn't exist at that time. Instead, we had what we called the Common Core. And uh, the Common Core was, was vague, it was national, and it wasn't uh, specific to actually the state or even areas of the state. So we took it a step further in the commission and... Um, we got, we got it incorporated into the May State Learning Results in 2007, then again in the revision. And uh, since then, like, like Pender had said, we uh, had just, through the social studies uh, section of the DOE, through Joe Schmidt, uh, had redone it again last summer of 18. So it's been through three iterations now uh, in the learning results. And so we're getting better at it. We still got ways to go. We still have to get buy-in. We, we do have um, school districts like Portland who are very involved, who have taken that initiative, and uh, individual teachers throughout the state who want to take some initiative. But I think what we need to make sure, though, is that people are not afraid of what, of what this law is because nobody's asking them to teach something they don't know about. We do have those resources, and I think that's what the Department of Education's next steps are is to get resources in the hands of, of teachers, administrators, support staff in the schools because it's something that uh, is important, but they don't need to reinvent. Do you want to say something, Darren? Uh, no, no, I just wanted to, to sort of call out, you know, some of the leaders. Um, John mentioned uh, Portland School District. That's, that's a, there's a recent initiative. They have a a, a, basically a curriculum coordinator just for Wabanaki, you know, to implement this law. Um, her name is Fiona Hopper, and she's been doing really great work and um, has also started us on the on the road, road towards assessment of how and where um, the law is actually being implemented. So, I mean, first things first, like how has, you know, 18 years later, where is this being implemented and how and by whom? Um, you know, for us to develop a plan collectively uh, out of that uh, to move forward, I think is really important. Um, and then, um, uh, yeah, with the support of the Department of Education, and I, and I hope in terms of teacher training, again, um, the, the schools that actually are certifying and training teachers across the state should be more conscious of how, how you know, we're going to actually train them before they go into the classroom so it wouldn't be just trying to play catch up, but they'd actually be, um, have some mandatory uh, class or classes that would train them in how to implement this law. So Pender, is there anything like that uh, in the works for training teachers? Well, we, as in the department, so I, I feel like Darren may be talking about pre-service um, teacher education, which is its own piece. And then through the department um, for current educators, we um, we built an entirely new office within the department. It's called the Office of School and Student Support. And it's, it's going to be in charge of um, looking at a whole lot of things from school safety and mental health and social emotional learning, but also um, be heavily focused on helping 
teachers and school leaders to develop culturally competent learning environments, which honors, you know, in order to honor the diversity and to very carefully support um, Native students and other minority students and marginalized populations. And within that, we're hoping to have um, professional development opportunities that look both at what types of um, learning environments and practices are in general best for supporting marginalized populations, but also helping teachers to get comfortable with the discomfort of examining pretty deep um, issues like privilege and the guilt uh, that, that can accompany that and recognizing um, I guess, or at least responding better within um, different cultural contexts and explain you know, in order, it's, there's a lot to it. So there's, of course, the content, like kids need to know and everyone needs to know what happened. And that in and of itself is a very difficult thing um, for anybody to imagine and to think about and to discuss. So that there's that. And then there are cultural um pieces that would be very helpful for everyone in our state to be aware of and to know about. And then there's the whole act of being perhaps a privileged white educator, which is basically, you know, the, the vast majority of, of our of our teaching staff in the state. And being able to properly address some of these issues in a sensitive way and in an informed way, in a brave, I guess, way, so that you're you're recognizing it's very hard to talk to children and to teach children about some of the atrocities and the the um, very difficult pieces without the tendency to want to whitewash it to make it a little, you know, more palatable. Um, for everybody, and I think it's really a matter of getting comfortable with being extraordinarily uncomfortable in this type of a process. Hmm. All of which plays into teacher training and, and professional development, technical assistance, and so forth. Do you have any ideas on that, Darren? <laughs> on how to um, create a culturally an sensitive and un uncomfortable learning environment? I mean, anyone who's taken one of my classes can attest to that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, and, and this is particularly true in the context of indigenous um, voices, peoples, and histories that, um, you know, it's not simply, uh, you know, maybe people don't know, but it's it's been purposely hidden. Um, and you could say early on, you know, uh, in the 20th, you know, it was purposely hidden for, for fairly nefarious reasons to... So people didn't have to deal with an didn't have to deal with the rights of people or or the fact that they you know had shady land deals or the state was actively while the same while at the time trying to say they are protecting native people they're constantly taking land from them and 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 stealing their resources it, just as a quick example that comes into our own state history, um, but I think in more recent decades is um, is that challenge of because people have been given an erased um, history that in some ways it's different than teaching math, right? That, that um, because you have to then let go of, and it cuts to the quick of people's identities of being a Maine or, or an American that, you know, it's like, it's those motions of like, well, I wasn't told that, why wasn't I taught this before? Um, so the sort of the anger and then Pender mentioned, you know, the potential guilt of like what, what, you know, Obviously, this has been erased for specific reasons, so I can not feel, you know, bad about the state actively, you know, um, defrauding Native people over the last however many uh, years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it it is, it 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 is um, requires a different uh, sort of context or learning and understanding for the teachers, so they can model how to understand and process that information to the children that they're teaching. So it, it is, I think, um, not to be taken kind of lightly in terms of how uncomfortable that might be, but I think there are methods, there are ways to um, 
and I think this is why it has to start with the teacher, obviously, they can model the way of understanding this, on the one hand, this erasure and sort of what that erasure means for the collective identity of Mainers or Americans. Any comment on that, John Vera? Yeah, well, I think that um, there's not one inch of soil in this, what we call state today, that a Native person hasn't stood on at one time in our 12,000 plus years of history in this area. And uh, therefore, I think it's really important for teachers and local school districts to localize their indigenous history and not teach it as a generic, well, I mean, it can be taught as a generic, an umbrella, sort of introductory uh, lesson or lessons to teachers, uh, for teachers to bring into their students. But at the same time, they need to really explore their local history a little bit and, um, and, and make, make it relevant. So if it becomes relevant, it becomes uh, more real to the students. The state of, of Maine, the DOE, I should say, under Pender's uh, guidance, is doing a series of trainings this coming academic year uh, in different regions in the state. And they're doing it on various topics. But um, that's one way to kind of get out there and to ease the minds of teachers at administrators uh, as far as what the content might be or what 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 is you know what is uh, appropriate to teach there are some things that are inappropriate to teach about indigenous people and uh, but there are many many more things that are appropriate and that's history and policy and activity in that area yeah and I just want to you know um, uh, while uh, uh, I think within sort of the native communities and and some of us who are educators and in, in from native communities, um, you know the state's uh, bicentennial isn't necessarily, you know, a total celebration. Um, there are a couple of really um, great and powerful exhibits, um, um, and there'll be uh, I think more coming online. Um, but I want to say the main historical. Uh, Society has a really great exhibit, sort of really comprehensive and thorough exhibit about Native people in what we call Maine over the last, you know, several thousand years. And um, Colby just opened an exhibit as well, Colby College, which um, emphasizes a little bit of that history. It really emphasizes the creativity and art and, and um, cultural traditions of, of creativity from Wabanaki people over over the last uh, several hundred years as well. So um, they're, they're, I think, uh, seizing on the, the, the bicentennial of Maine as, um, as a way to learn and understand more deeply um, Maine Native people. I think there are plenty of opportunities, and I've spoken to a number of groups, um, and I'll speak, I think I have some some other speaking engagement to talk about, to um, the, the Maine Association of Museums and Libraries uh, has their annual meeting in October. I'll be giving a keynote there to sort of how to tell Wabanaki stories and histories in the context of a Maine bicentennial, but do it in the way that, that John mentioned, which is ethically, responsibly, you know, um, and, and, and locally, you know, that it not be some um, generic kind of uh, context. So I think that's, I th I'm, I'm, I was worried about the bicentennial as a way, as uh, potentially it would further erase us because it would be celebratory and kind of not try to get into the quote unquote bad things. But I see this as actually um, so far a fairly positive uh, way to tell these uh, truer stories and uh, sort of the, the story of Maine from a Wabanaki perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I was going to bring that bicentennial up. So thank you for. Uh, Sorry, I jumped the gun. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Um, so, Pender, are any of the, is there like a plan for a bicentennial um, events or whatever in any of the schools? Or Well, I imagine that many, if not most of the schools in Maine will be finding some way to acknowledge the bicentennial. And you have had some exciting ideas that we'd love to share, and I think we can do that through our, um, the Department of Education website which may not sound exciting. However, we have um, re-engaged a lot of people who, um, who are now connected and, and waiting for our updates 
and we would be happy to send out guidance or ideas or suggestions for ways in which Wabanaki history and culture can be incorporated within celebrations and acknowledgments of the bicentennial. I think this is also an exciting fall for kids to be heading back to school because I believe it's the first year where we will be statewide celebrating Indigenous Peoples Day instead uh, yes. of Columbus Day. So um, that, that provide. I think that there are several um, entry points where people can, you know, use days or celebrations or acknowledgments as um, instructional opportunities, I guess. So I think it would be wonderful to see a lot of inclusion of Wabanaki culture and history, certainly in the bicentennials, but also right around that October holiday that's going to be so nice to uh, have acknowledged, I think, this year. Yep, I agree. So is the, is the university going to do anything special for that time? Indigenous Peoples Day? Yeah. So um, our current, spot. Go ahead. current <laughs> plans are um, about that time. It might not be right on that day. Is um, We were actually, because it's the uh, year of indigenous languages, we we're going to have um, our second um, meeting of language native language practitioners from the region because our languages are connected to other speakers is so um to have uh, a symposium and, and a sharing by these uh, native language speakers so it i'm always torn you know i think this is one of the uh, great things about my job is uh you know we have this real public role of educating publics uh, across the state about who we are but I'm, I'm, you know, as, as someone who's responsible for the Wabanaki Center, I see that as um, serving Wabanaki people, communities, and nations uh, as well. And sometimes, and so I see this actual gathering around uh, the uh, Indigenous Peoples Day as one that's serving our collective languages and communities and our connection to um, um, our culture. So I'm going to focus, we're focusing on that. Um, there will be a series of other kinds of events, though, uh, related to constitutionality and, and, and different elements of, of main history throughout the year. Right. So, Pender, I'm going to uh, give you a, f a minute or so to say the, give us some last thoughts before we go off the air. Okay. Um, well, I guess I would say I'm very grateful to have been working with you, Donna, and with Darren and with John and several others. Um, I've learned so much just in, in my short time in this role. And I am, I'm encouraged because um, in discussing this out in the field, I'm learning that we may not know about it, but apparently a lot of work is happening already and people have been um, incorporating the, the Wabanaki history and culture into their locally developed curricula and to whatever extent. I mean, I, I think we have a long way to go, but I've been very encouraged to hear this is actually, it is happening. Certainly it's happening in Portland. I know um, having recently left the district of Brunswick um, that we had, it's right there, you know, on our elementary school um, curriculum, scope and sequence. They do a, a really big and, and well-received uh, Wabanaki culture um, unit and I'm pretty sure those teachers met with I don't I'm not exactly sure which individuals but certainly people uh, tribal leaders or educators who um, who provided them with I think a week-long experience at one point to, to obtain the, the knowledge the understanding the resources to make that happen and speaking of resources oh the department is uh, working hard to update and make accessible with a front page link our um, pages of resources and links uh, that teachers can access as they are working to incorporate love and hockey studies into their practice. Okay, well, thank you. Um, and uh, thank you all out there, Radio Land, <laughs> for joining us today. Uh, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. I want to thank my guests, Dr. Darren Ranko and John Beer Mitchell uh, from the Webinaki Center and the University of Maine Orono, and the Commissioner of Education, uh, Pender Macon. Uh, 
So, and the music from our show is by Rolf Richter, track called Little Eagles, from his CD Dreamwalk. And our engineer for the show was John Greenman. So please join us next month for another Webinacki Windows. Well, let's take a quick look at the weather while we've got a chance here. We've got a beautiful day coming towards us, and it already is here. Sunny with a high near 83 northwest, winds around 9 miles an hour, becoming west in the afternoon. Mostly clear tonight with a low around 59, south winds 3 to 6. Wednesday, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, mainly after 1 o'clock. Mostly sunny with a high near 78, south winds 5 to 11. Chance of precipitation is about 30%. Wednesday night, chance of showers and thunderstorms before 10, and then showers likely and possibly a thunderstorm between 10 and 3. Stay tuned for On the Wing. Democracy Now! produces a daily, global, independent news hour hosted by award-winning journalists Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. Their reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. On Democracy Now!, you'll hear diversity of voices speaking for themselves, providing a unique and sometimes provocative perspective on global events. Headlines at 8 o'clock Monday through Friday and Democracy Now! in its entirety at 5 p.m. Right here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. You are listening to WERU 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming live at WERU.org. It is already August 20th, and this is the Tuesday edition of On the Wing with Shane and Mark. I'm Shane. Hi, I'm Mark. Welcome to On the Wing. We have three hours of eclectic music planned for you today, featuring songs by the Cranberries, Richard Thompson, Nancy Griffith, Green Day, the Cactus Blossoms, Old Crow Medicine Show, and some old-school standards from the likes of Rosemary Clooney, Ella Fitzgerald, and Mel Torme, and much more, including... Della Reese, I think, Della is going to be on sometime. And, of we'll course, see. we're also going to be playing some Broadway. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Now, this we're going to play three new songs to start, to start the show off. These are brand new in 2019. And uh, the first song is from Jamestown Revival, and we've really enjoyed their album, um, San uh, Isabel. If you've been listening to WERU, you've heard this uh, album being played quite a bit. It's pretty popular um, uh, amongst right. the DJs and we, amongst the listeners. We've played several tracks from yeah. it already. So we're going to start with Crazy World by Jamestown Revival. Master of the soapbox Gonna shout a little more Tin Pan Alley Tomcat Said I'd be a millionaire I lost my sense of time I didn't even care I try believing Believing in the goodness of man I learned my lesson He took all I had, turned around and ran Yeah, man, it's still a crazy world I guess some things are never gonna change Yeah, man, what you gonna do? It's harder every day, just trying to make it through It's true, maybe judgment day is overdue Trail down through the pines, serenaded by the song of a world I left behind. Somewhere singing in a minor key, everything I see reminded me it's hard to slow the steady march of time. Has it all been decided? I worry that I never had a choice. Have we all? 
Just another voice adding to the noise. Yeah, man, it's still a crazy world. I guess some things are never gonna change. Yeah, man, what you gonna do? It's harder every day. Just trying to make it through. It's true. Maybe judgment day is overdue. Towards our judgment day. Hope you're nimble, hope you're quick, hope you clear the candlestick. It's burning with the holy rolling flame. Are we just an agonizing, no good group of idolizing fools running round without a clue? Has it always been this way? Is this how it's gonna stay? Is there any way we'll make it through? Maybe judgment day. 